Amen. All right, if you would be turning in your Bibles to Ephesians 5, we'll be in verses 22 through 33 this morning. Um, I, I want to give you a couple of um, qualifications for this passage before we get deep into it. Um, I, I do think it's probably one of the most misunderstood and misinterpreted passages in the Bible. Uh, and so that's, that straight away means this, every single one of us has baggage on this passage, both good and bad, right? If, if you've heard the distortion of it where it's applied woodenly and without really being deeply thought through, or it's, if it's overly applied literalistically, then, then it's probably wounded you somewhere along the way. And that woundedness is going to cause you to hear this and, and, and hear some things in a certain way that you want to be careful of. So I'm going to pray for us here in just a second, but I want to give you a couple other caveats. Uh, also, if you're single, uh, it's not that you can tune out because this is a sermon on marriage. No, this, in fact, th this is a great sermon for you to think through, if I do say so myself. Uh, for <laughs> I don't, <laughs> trying to be humble, I don't know. Uh, and so, um, but seriously, it's, it, you need framework, right? Uh, because it is, it, it is a weighty matter. For those of us who are married, been married for any length of time, it is not something you ever want to rush into lightly or force. Uh, it's something you want to take great pains to consider and be prayerful about and have something that you can think through other than just what the world would tell us or our own desires would tell us is the reason we should get married. And then another caveat is oftentimes we read, uh, we don't read well. Um, we don't, you got to remember, we, we are actually doing Ephesians a slight disservice by preaching through it bit by bit in one sense, right? In, in this context, it would have been read in full. So uh, they would have had the privilege of hearing everything in the right tone and key. And so if we step into verse 22 uh, and, and following without bringing with us verses 1, 1 through 5, 21 in some measure, form, or fashion, we're going to read this completely wrong. It's going to lend itself to a very wooden application, uh, a very non-contextualized application of this passage that I think is incredibly dangerous for us. So I'm not going to fix everything uh, in just uh, 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 30 minutes or so. I know it's prophetic and hopeful. Uh, and, and so uh, I'm not. And also I want to recognize that there are those of you in here who are hurting on, 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 the, on the topic of marriage. And I, don't, I want to be very careful with my words. I don't want you to leave here this morning hearing something wrongly. And so there's one last thing I want you to hear. This passage doesn't apply to every marriage. Let that sit for a second. It doesn't. And if you try to make it apply to a marriage that is unequally yoked, for instance, you will do great damage to one another. If you try to make it apply woodenly in a circumstance in which you're having some marital difficulties and struggles, you will further wound each other in a fashion that is patently unbiblical and not of Christ. So I recognize that there are a number of marriages in here who are going through various states of sanctification. 
you're struggling, hopefully you're struggling well, maybe you feel like you're losing even, I understand. And so I want to make sure that you recognize that this is not being foisted upon you without some qualification. And there are some things that need to be thought through because different people are in different places and it'll be worked out differently. So I don't have time this morning to give you every way in which it'll work out. So this is a great sermon uh, for us to have conversations about within the context of our small groups. This is a great sermon to serve as that. Don't come to me as mortician. Come to me as bone setter uh, instead. Um, this is a great sermon for further conversation because, again, we're so familiar with it in one sense that we have no idea what it means contemptibly in another. Okay? So having said all that, let me pray for us, and then we'll dive in. Father, this is your word. And you have things to say to us that we need to hear. Would you give us the ears to hear in the right key in which you're speaking to us here today? Yes, it was a letter to the Ephesian saints in Ephesus, but their, their cultural circumstances, is not, it wasn't that dissimilar to ours. So may we be edified and encouraged and challenged rightly in the places that we need to be challenged. Help us unload our baggage. Help us to heal from the ways in which Various ones of us have been wounded by this passage. Help us to hear what applies to us. Help us to also see where this may not be talking to us in the same way that it maybe is talking to some other people. Help us appreciate our sanctification. Help us to appreciate that you appreciate that we are but dust. And you don't require more of us than what Christ can uphold and the Holy Spirit can bring to pass. May we trust you. Trust your word. Trust your reconciliatory purposes in this world. In Christ's name, amen. All right, so the, the, the main truth that I want us to walk away with, which I'll unpack further, is that marriage, and this is, this is one of the key qualifiers, in Christ. So I go back. If, if you're unequally yoked for some reason, if, if, you are, um, if there's some stuff going on where you're pulling against one another and you're not really trying to walk in Christ, it makes it really hard, in fact, impossible to live out any of what we're talking about. But you, but you have a place to start, right? If you're pulling in different directions, repentance is a wonderful place to begin. Uh, but marriage in Christ should serve as a sacred canopy for the display of his redemptive love for the life of the world. We'll unpack that further here in just a moment, but let me ask you a question. How's your life been affected by other people's marriages and their dynamics, whether it's family, friends, neighbors? I've been affected by coworkers uh, and the things that they're going through in their marriage, both good and bad, right? Your marriage is affecting everybody around you and your spheres of influence, whether you know it or not. I wanna go back to something we say here often. You are witnessing all day, every day. The question is, what is it you're witnessing to? Now, I'm using the term witness in the more the Southern Baptistic sense of sharing. We are sharing what we believe with our lives all the time. And remember, uh, and you will find this to be true if you were to ask around, more people are watching you than you realize. More people are, have opinions about you and how you live your life than you know right? 
Uh, and we do it too. We fill in narrative stories about our neighbors or coworkers. Whenever we hear some, like if they let their grass get too high, we start making stuff up about them. And while the HOA should storm in like some sort of tyrannical uh, government and kick them out of their home and shave their grass clean, right? I mean, we make up all kinds of stories in our head about what's going on in other people's lives. Well, everybody else is doing it to you too. The question is, what kind of narrative are you putting forward with how you live? And is it clear, right? Your marriage is one of the key places where they recognize what it is you really believe because your marriage, if you're married, that's your closest neighbor and how you treat your closest neighbor. You're not hiding it. A lot of you think you're better at hiding it than you really are. You're not. It's just most of us don't have the courage to confront you about it. Um, And we'll let it ride for a while. But you need to recognize that your marriage is one of the primary, if not the primary vehicle, by which you are witnessing in the world. And so it's important that you recognize that and be intentional. This goes back to last week. Are you going to be proactive about that, or are you going to be reactive? And again, let me, let me say this one more time, because I know there's people in here uh, who are hurting. We, we have, in the double digits, uh, marriages that are in some form and fashion of disarray. And it's been a heavy thing on me this week as I've thought through it and counted it up. And that's just the ones I know. Um, and so I, I recognize you've got to start where you are. You, you, and again, remember how we talk about everybody wants to jump to being and not becoming. To be a marriage that's a sacred canopy, there's an enormous amount of becoming that you must do, and it'll never be perfect in this life. Never. And that's good news, actually, because you can't get there from here that way. And some of you are going to hear some of this stuff and go, well, I don't, I don't see us doing that. Well, no, you've you got to say it right. I don't see us doing that right now. But the question you need to ask is, what are the, what's the next best step we could take to get on the road to becoming that? And what you say, uh, your willingness to ask that question reveals everything that you believe about the gospel in Jesus Christ. For you not to be willing to ask that question You're saying that Jesus and the cross and the resurrection are are rendered null and void by your or your spouse or your combined sin. And you need to think about whether or not you want to make that kind of statement. If you're going to make it, make it bold. Confess it straight out right. Don't try to dance around it. And so um, we need to recognize that this is one of God's chosen vehicles. Remember, it's, it's part of the creation mandate. It was the first institution he created in which to house his glory. That's what a sacred canopy does. It's the place where God's glory dwells. There's a number of places that he declared specific as those places. The temple was one of them. Anytime God's people gather together is another and uniquely within the confines of marriage. And so it's important that we hear Paul's words in the right key. So I'm going to read the text, 22 to 33, and we're going to jump all the way to verse 32 to start there and then work our way backward. So if you would give your attention to the reading of God's word, as Paul is going to give us some very specific instruction about how to live in Christ for the life of the world using the common, ordinary institutions that are present in the world. Wives, submit to your own husbands. As to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, 
So also, wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish." In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Now, if you try to step into verse 22 without the entire freight of verse 32, you are quickly in trouble. And this isn't just a cultural issue. In fact, you would be in trouble from the perspective of God's uh, display of his image uniquely in both man and woman. Okay? So what I want to do is I want to back up and read to you uh, part of chapter 2 that we shouldn't forget because any time that Paul uses the word mystery in Ephesians, it is in effect a technical term, and that's really important. And the technical part of it is this. So always what he means is that the mystery of Christ is that he would reconcile to himself two opposing groups of people who have no reason whatsoever to come together for any other purpose than his reconciliation. And what's fascinating about what he says in chapter 2 about tearing down that middle wall, which we'll read here in a second, he uses marital language. He says the two men become one man or flesh. That's marital language. And so what I'm going to argue ardently is that marriage is primarily, first and foremost, in totality to display the reconciliation of Christ in all of its uniqueness and beauty for the world to see. Because there's no other place where you will be tested in terms of reconciliation like marriage. Because you can get away from everybody else in some form or fashion in a unique way that you can't necessarily in marriage. And so we want to recognize the uniqueness of this opportunity and then think through how we do that individually and how we help one another do that as a church. So if you would give your attention to the reading of Ephesians chapter 2. So again, I won't read verses 1 through 10. The presupposition is is that Paul is talking to two people, husbands and wives, who have been reconciled to God. They were enemies of God at some point, right? And they've been reconciled to God. In the same way, he's talking here to Gentiles and Jews, both of which were enemies of God, have been reconciled to God, and now need to be reconciled to one another. So with that being said, here again, the reading of God's word. This is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what he called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, 
remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Now notice what happened first. They were redeemed individually first. The Gentiles were redeemed. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of the commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. Now, remember, peace is also a technical term here. It's not just about feeling. It is actual true reconciliation at every single level. It's shalom, right? It's not just a ceasefire like we have in many marriages. It's not just a detente. You know what detente is? Just a, hey, we agree to sleep in separate rooms. Hey, we agree not to look square at one another. Hey, we agree that we really don't like each other, but for the sake of the kids, we're gonna ride this thing out as if it doesn't affect the kids to have two enemies living together, acting as enemies. So he's not talking about that kind of brokered peace that we can come up with. He's talking about a peace that surpasses all understanding. And so this peace has created one new man. Marital language. The two became one flesh in Christ. That's why he refers to the church as his bride and he as our bridegroom. Not only did he marry them, marry us to one another, he has married us to him. Can't do it outside of Christ. That's why I say, before we ever start talking about submission and trying to love your wife as Christ loved the church, we better make sure that we understand who we are in Christ first, because otherwise it is a fool's errand. You will hurt yourself and you will hurt everybody around you. And so he goes on, and he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grow into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place or sacred canopy for God by the Spirit. So it's critical that we recognize that marriage is intended in all facets, primarily to display the radical reconciliation that Christ has brought into this world. Notice all the other passages too, what we read from 4, 1 through 8. Why would Christ call us to pursue unity among relative strangers. Like, we're to be unified. You, you get that, right? Like it says, in humility, but that not apply to your marriage. Why would he be concerned only with unity among a group of people who only, many of you, only see each other for whatever period of time this is about to be? 
This is it. This is all you'll see these folks for this week. But you are to fight for in humility, unity with this group of people who, by the way, last election voted 25% in every direction. We got another election coming up. I'll be preaching through Proverbs. Stay tuned. So also recognize that we have a variety of opinions on lots of things, right? And yet we are called to be unified in this thing, in Christ alone, by faith alone, through God's grace alone. And so a marriage that doesn't have Christ as the chief cornerstone, a marriage that doesn't found itself on that principle, cannot do what Paul is going to ask them to do. And so we first must orient ourselves and recognize the radical reconciliation that our marriages are to display, that we should be swift. If, if we're not to let the sun go down on our anger between each other, who don't sleep next to one another, how much swifter ought we be when it is the person who will sleep next to us or in our own home? And I'm not talking about cheap reconciliation either, by the way. I'm not talking about offering up your throat for chief peace. I'm talking about reconciliation in Christ. And we all get lost sometimes. Susan and I will celebrate 20 years, and she's not in here to stop me, so I can say whatever I want. But there have been some rough patches. They just have, and I'm not going to go into all those details. But 20 years, you're going to hit turbulence, and you're also going to feel like the bolts are coming apart. This thing's blowing apart. There have been moments where both of us felt the floor dry. Now, that's the only way I know how to describe it. I remember standing in New Orleans, and it felt like the floor had fallen out from underneath me. And everything was going to change from that moment forward, and nothing would ever be the same. And the Lord, in his grace and mercy, held fast. Yes, the floor gave way, but the foundation didn't. The cornerstone held, and we fought for what we had been given in Christ. Yes, it is going to be hard sometimes. You're in the process of becoming not just individually, but as one flesh. What must you be together that you couldn't be singularly? This is the main question whenever I do premarital counseling that I ask is, now listen, I, I get it. We want to be attracted to the person we're going to marry, and that's, that's great. But that, that, that can't be primary. And sometimes attraction forms over time as you see who someone is. You got to be around them. You got to spend time with them. You got to go through something together to see what you really have because when it's all nice and easy, well, that's, that just doesn't test it. That you don't find out what you have. And so it's important that you, you who are not yet married have this as your main question that you would ask is what can the two of us do together for the glory of the Lord as sacred canopy to display uniquely the reconciliation of Christ that we couldn't do individually? So that means that for some who are called to singleness, that means that the answer to the question is, if you're like John Stott or some other people who lived a life of total singleness, Paul, that means that the answer to the question is, you being yoked to someone else is not actually going to accomplish that. But for the majority of us, we need, we need the, the iron sharpening iron of marriage. 
And so you want to ask, you want to be sure of that before you enter into it lightly. Don't ignore the red flags. Don't ignore all these things. Now, for those of you who are currently married and thinking you married the wrong person, well, again, I, I get it. I ask Susan all the time, you, you got to be thinking, like, I, like what, did I, what have I done? And she's so sweet, and she's like, mm, not right this minute. <clears throat> But for those of you who, who think you married the wrong person, again, be careful. Are you saying that you having made that mistake eclipses the very cross of Christ to reconcile you to that which was at one time the wrong person? Are you saying that the resurrection of Christ cannot breathe new life into a marriage that feels like it's dying and or dead? Is that what you're saying? Because if you are, say it loud. You're better to confess it all the way out loud and live with the consequences of your confession than to believe a lie that never comes into the light. Now, I don't believe that there is any such thing as having married the wrong person and therefore you get a free out. God is too sovereign for all that nonsense. I do understand that sometimes the road goes out. Christ himself, may I not say less or more than what he did, if there is... Uh, an affair and the road is just out, trust can't be restored, or if there is the danger of physical harm, uh, true danger, not just perceived danger, then absolutely yes, that has to be thought through very differently than what I'm talking about here. Those circumstances do not apply to what we're going to talk about in 522 and following. Different circumstances. But it's critical that every conversation about marriage circle back to this. And, and maybe you're feeling like, well, I don't, we're just not there. That's a great place to start. That's a great confession to begin with. But why would you not want to get there? To taste and see the fullness of God's goodness in and through the institution of marriage that he called forth when he created the world, which he gave to us so that we could display these things. And so, as we now step to the passage, I think, that is most abused and been most damaging, I think, because I, I hear it all the time in counseling, this wives submit to your own husbands. Now, it's important that we recognize contextually, culturally, what's happening here, okay? So what was marriage like in Ephesus? Well, most of the time, marriage was not like... It is now. You're not choosing someone based on attraction. You're not choosing someone at all. It's being chosen for you. Either via social class, like you could not cross classes. That, that was a big no-no. In fact, your responsibility, the wife's responsibility or the, the, the daughter's responsibility often was to marry such that it would improve the lot of the entire family. That's a lot to carry especially in Ephesus. And it was also on them to oftentimes marry someone that was atrocious and knew that she was being granted to him in some form of patronage. So it was all this arranged marriage type stuff uh, by and large. And so this, it wasn't like what we think about marriage today. So when Paul speaks to the wife first, you need to understand how countercultural and subversive a move that was on his part. That is for him to say, you who are considered of least value in this culture, 
I'm talking to you first and giving you an option, a way in which you can display the glory of God in a marriage that has been redeemed by Christ. And so when he says, wives, submit to your own husbands, one of the things that was going on in that day is oftentimes because she got yoked to someone she really didn't like a whole lot, there would be wanderings of sorts, whether it was infidelity and adultery or just having other speakers come into the home doing all kinds of stuff with free time and money and, and things of that nature that had her carrying her attention and focus away from her own home. That wasn't true of everyone, but that was a very common thing in their day. And so for him to say, you submit to your own husband, he's saying, turn your gaze back to the one who, as it turns out, God in his sovereignty has placed you with because I've redeemed him. You can't hear submit without knowing what's coming for him. The more lengthier uh, set of instructions. So saying, submit to your own husband. Now that word submit, in our culture's mouth, um, it, it, it doesn't play well. What Paul means here is to, be, is to be genuinely interested in the greater good of the other. Which, what is the greater good of the other in a Christian relationship? That they would display the glory of Christ with all of their gifts and abilities. So one of the great ways that she would have the opportunity to submit and that, and that our wives, you have the opportunity to submit, is in prayer. What an amazing thing. You get to pray for your husband and you are calling up. Don't forget Ephesians chapter one. What do you have access to according to verses three through 14? All of the heavenly blessings. So you, you want to be concerned for the greater good of your husband. Commit to pray for him because the Holy Spirit's going to do the work that you can't do. He's going to reach into the places that you cannot reach. He is going to soften what you couldn't soften if you could pound it with a hammer for a hundred years. So what would it look like if in our marriages committed to Christ, chief cornerstone, that prayer was one of the main ways in which one looked out for the greater good of the other. He goes on and he says, you are to submit to your own husband as to the Lord, which means that your husband ought to look something like Christ. You're not to submit to just anybody. You're not to submit to someone who doesn't love Christ. And I'm, what I mean by that is submit in the wrong way. Do remember Peter speaks to the unequally yoked marriage. That's your passage if that's for you. You stay in it again, how you, you would pray for his redemption. That would be your greatest focus. And never would you allow or submit to something that's going to take you away from the glory of the Lord under any circumstance. It's not what's being said here. In fact, that's a misapplication of the word everything that we'll get to here in just a moment that many in the patriarchy like to throw forward. And so he says, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. Now, how was Christ the head of the church? What did he call himself? What did he say, I came to be? Came to be the servant of all. So it's not that you are called to submit to someone who doesn't get that their primary calling is is, is to serve and love his family to the glory of God. What an amazing and glorious thing if that were true of our marriages. What a beautiful thing that would be. 
And so his calling is to look like Christ. This is why it's so important that we periodically go back and go through the life of Christ. Husbands, it's one of the wisest things you will ever do. Wives, it's one of the greatest things you will ever do just so it's known what to pray for for your husband. And so he goes on and he says, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, husbands, don't go thinking you're the eternal savior here, but that means that you would be submitting and and you are ultimately looking for the greater good of someone who is going to love you like no one else will, who will lay down his life for you in so many ways and make sure you have everything you need to be able to glorify God. It says, now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit and everything to their husband. And I've made the comment before that the Ephesians has a lot of parallels to the book of Proverbs. And this is, if you, if you were to pull that, you could actually stick that in Proverbs. That was just a, a two-line deal. And both of those things, you can't, you can't pull that bottom one out without the qualification of the top one, right? So the submitting in everything is not anything that is beyond the glory of God. That would, that would make total nonsense of it. But what there's, the everything there is everything that will build you up so that you both can display the glory of God for the life of the world. It is not, I said it, that does it. That's not the way this works. And for us to do that is actually to diminish Christ. Because how did Christ lead? Did he lead with an iron fist? Or was he gentle? A gentle shepherd who lovingly loved his church. Who did he reserve his harshest words for, by the way? Anybody who twisted what it was that he was here to do. Anybody who would in any way, shape, or form take away from the glory of reconciliation. Anybody who would keep anybody else out. That's who he gave his harshest words to. But to his bride... Always spoke tenderly. So how should, how, and, and, and so if you're concerned with the greater good of your husband, how should you speak of him? How did the church speak of Christ? You should always be out for his, his reputation and good. This is just a good keeping of the ninth commandment, by the way. We're to do that for each other. I'm supposed to protect your reputation. Why would it be less in a marriage? Why do we have more freedom to speak ill of someone that's so close, that the Lord so granted to us, has entrusted to us? And so it's important that in submitting, that that word submit be recognized in its gospel implications, which is to be concerned for the greater good of the other so that they may display the glory of Christ as they were uniquely called. Anything else is worldly. Anything else will hurt you. Any other application of this is wounding. Now, husbands, you are to love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he may sanctify her. Why why would you not want her to be able to display the fullness of her gifting, the fullness of her image-bearing in the way that he has called her. One of the great joys I've had in moving to the suburbs 
um, is seeing Susan find her calling. She worked for a pest control company for years. You'd be surprised how soap opera men can be. Uh, it was crazy. It just drained the life out of her. Every day she'd come home exhausted from just, and I'm like, you're just working with a bunch of dudes who kill bugs. How hard can that be? Uh, and it was just a mental drain and not feeling like what she was doing meant anything at all. And we get here and I, didn't, I just didn't see what the Lord was at work. In fact, I sometimes argue that our calling to this area may have been more about her than even me. And so she comes home overjoyed. Yes, some days are harder than others, but she has found her calling. And what a gift. And I want to make sure that she has every opportunity to express that calling in the world. For some of you, your calling, your longing is to be a stay-at-home mom, right? Because you, you, you that's what you want, that's what you desire. and that's, that's a great and high calling. Not everyone's called to it, by the way. But husbands, if you want to love your wife as Christ loved the church, you do what it takes for her to be able to do that, her calling. If she's called to be the CEO of a major corporation, if she is called to teach in a public school, if she's called to go back and get her PhD, you, you, and, and, use, and she's going to use that for the glory of the Lord. She gets that all vocations are God's vocation. And you do what you can. Do everything you can to make sure that she can do everything that she's called to do. And if you all are mutually out for the greater good of each other, can you imagine what that would look like? Notice how Christ treated the church. What did he say about every time she would gather? What did he say? I will be there. Let me tell you that one of the great ways that we are actually cutting our cornerstone out from under us metaphorically because you can't actually do it, but you're doing it practically, is you don't spend any time with your wife. You are running from opportunities. You are hiding in plain view. And you may argue, well, we, we, just don't, we don't share the same interests. You think Susan and I share the same interests? She doesn't like hot wings. Strike one. She doesn't like any of the music I like. Like last time, she threatened to stab herself in the ear with a pencil. If I ever took her to see Vic Chestnut again, he died, which <laughs> saved us that whole thing. Right? <clears throat> like, we, we don't like the same movies hardly. You know, she, 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 likes, she likes Marvel movies, for crying out loud, and, uh, and, and I'm sorry. And she likes Harry Potter, it's even worse, and, so, and all that kind of stuff, right? Oh, I'm sorry, I'd offend. How many did I offend just there? <laughs> I don't like any of that stuff. I just don't. What I like is dark and moody and blah, 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 right? But you know, it does my heart good sometimes to watch good rom-com or some Marvel movie, whatever. Uh, you know, but to be with my wife and to not always find something better to do. You're communicating something deeply when you say, I don't really want to spend time with you. And I know what y'all are doing. Some of y'all are calculating. All right. How, <clears throat> what's the over-under on this thing? Well, if that's how you're thinking, you need to repent. You just do. And I get it. Well, Susan and I don't spend every minute together. We have, I go to concerts without her now, by and large. Uh, sometimes I even, I've gone to movies without her uh, as well, and she vice versa. 
But we've always made sure that there was a, there was a time that was designated for one another. Right? And so, you, you, husbands, if part of you loving your wife as Christ loved the church is to spend time with her. And I'm not talking about just being in the same house, not speaking or looking at one another, uh, or tension so thick you could cut it with a, a piece of paper. It's important that you recognize to love your wife as Christ loved the church is to know how he loved the church. So that means if you're not in the word, you're not going to know. It's not going to challenge you. If you're not in prayer, praying for her, praying for her greatest good, that she would have every opportunity to display the glory of God in a world that has by and large been telling women for centuries that they are of lesser value. What a cultural moment. What an amazing passage that we have been given to display the gospel in a world that doesn't see it this way at all. What a way to be a husband and a man for Christ. Love your wife as Christ loved the church. And notice what it says. It says, this is tied to your own good. Who, who hates their own body? Who doesn't take care of and make sure of it has what it needs? And so your livelihood is tied to how your wife is doing, how she's able to display the image of God in a world that says she's really not of that much value. Think of all of the whip. We as men don't have to go through hardly any of this, but think of the whiplash. If you just scroll through Yahoo, and I don't know why you'd do that, but if you just scroll through Yahoo, you're going to go, you're going to get whiplash from, if you look like Kim Kardashian, you're doing great, but, but you're not because you're not making the money. You're not in Turks and Caicos or whatever. But, but no, really, you should probably look like Gigi Hadid, who weighs like 100 pounds soaking wet. No, 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 no. You need to wear this clothing over here. No, you need this. You need this for value, this for value. They don't have articles for men hardly like that. Usually there's like one article about beer or wings or, or how to have just one ab and be satisfied with that giant ab, right? So it's still going on, by the way, right? We, we, we act like we've progressed, right? That we, we've liberated in some ways. Mm -mm. Not near what Christ would have us. We're not near the freedom as image bearers that God would call for us to display in this fallen world. And so, so husbands, you are to look so much like Jesus, which takes a lot of cultivating, and you are not going to be, you got to become. And I get it. We all have different personalities, and this will be displayed differently in different marriages, right? All of them are not going to look the same. You can't pull the, the Peter deal where you're like, Christ is like, hey, I'm going to you're going to get crucified upside down. He's like, hey, what about John? What's going to happen to him? Well, that's not your story, right? I love that Aslan is all the time telling the kids who want to know everybody else's stories, that's not your story to know. I'm telling you your story. So you got to begin where you are with who you are, with what you have, but you must long for, hope for, in the power of the gospel, the, 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 the desire to cherish one another. Cherish, what a beautiful word, and it's even used in here. Who doesn't want to be cherished and cared for and beloved? Yes, for some of you, the road feels out, or the road feels way too long. 
It's amazing how quickly the gospel can bring back new life in the midst of very difficult circumstances. It's amazing how beautiful and deep reconciliation really is and what an impact it can have on a community of people. There's a marriage that recently has been redeemed in our congregation, and there's people, they're, they're asking them stuff all the time. Like, they're probably going to have to set up a scheduler and kind of tell, you know what I'm saying? Like, like, we long to hear that this can work. Me saying it, what I'm saying right now, it won't make it past lunch for you. But seeing it in the life of someone, seeing it displayed beautifully and on display for all to see, that's a whole nother matter indeed, Right? Because we don't believe just words. It's easy to talk sacred canopy in the abstract. It's a whole nother matter to say, I have violated the covenant with my spouse, but we have done the hard work of reconciling to one another. We have done the hard work of being able to say we love each other and mean it, whereas there was a season when the words wouldn't form in either one of our mouths for differing reasons. And yet, they fall like honey now. I've seen it. I've experienced it. I've lived it. And I know it can be possible for you too. And we're all starting where we're starting. And so you have to remember that God in his sovereignty is speaking to you today where you are. To use the author of Hebrews' statement, how will you respond today? If you're hearing it today, what will you do? What step will you take beginning today? And so many of you have to wrestle with the fact that maybe you don't believe the gospel. Which means maybe you're, maybe you're not a Christian. Which means that the beginning of this whole thing, this, how this is going to start, is you actually become what it was you thought you were by your own thoughts and actions. Instead, remember what we read, we are to do we are to do in keeping with repentance. What does that mean came first? God's grace, God's redeeming of you, you repent, and then your obedience flows out of repentance. You don't, you don't obey, you don't have works in keeping with repentance to get God to love you. You do it because you know you're loved and you're now free to do it. But we first have to recognize the radicalness of Christ's reconciliation. And answer the question, what are you willing to fight for, being that you have been given every tool in history, in the history of the universe, in the history of the world, all heavenly blessings to help you get through this? Remember, I'd rather set the bone that's broken than be the mortician who declares dead what should have been so full of life. Listen to what John Stott says about this. He says, now... You got to hear this in the right key, because if you hear it too absolutist from a guy who never married, you won't believe what he's saying. He says, now, to lose oneself, that the other may find his or herself, that is the essence of the gospel in Christ. Let me be really careful here. It doesn't mean that you are of no value, but if you're, you are mutually seeking to edify and build up one another, it's not the losing of oneself on one's part only. For those of you who are married, you know there are different seasons. There's different seasons in which this losing occurs more for one than maybe the other. When I was in seminary, 
And uh, it had been so hard on our family for me to drive back and forth from Macon to, to Atlanta, to Marietta. Uh, I, I was coming to the end of my, my degree, right? I was in the last class before I'd write the last paper where we'd be done. I think I was about three, three and a half years in, okay? As I sat in that last class, I thought, I'm not done. And I don't know if I can go home and tell Susan that. I don't know if I'm going to be able to live there if I tell her this. So I came in the door, and, uh, and she was sitting, and she didn't even look up at me, which is like super Jedi, Star Wars stuff. She likes that too. I don't. Uh, and so she didn't even look up, and she said, I know you're not finished. Finish it. So I crept on down the hall so I wouldn't have to interpret that any further than what it was. And so for three and a half more years, I went on to get my MDiv. Uh, and, uh, it was, and, and so I, she lost a lot during that time. There were times where she had to deal with the kids. I remember one time in particular, Kimberly was coming completely off the rails. I was at a weekend class. Um, we had to call, I had to call a friend to come get Kimberly to unlock the bathroom and not do something harmful to herself. Uh, and I felt, you know, and again, you may say, why didn't you get in the car and go home? That's a great question. I just didn't. Because I didn't, Susan lost. Lost part, but not, not the whole. And there have been seasons in which I have lost so that Susan would be raised up. I have told her many times if she'd like to go back and further her degree in some way, shape, or form, it is more than her turn. Um, if she would like to, to do that. And so, um, and there's other ways in which, which this happens, right? So there's seasons, right? So don't hear this as zero sum. Let me read it again. Now to lose oneself, that the other may find his or herself, that is the essence of the gospel in Christ. It is also the essence of the marriage relationship. For as the husband loves his wife and the wife submits to her husband, each is seeking to enable the other to become more fully himself and herself within the harmonious complementarity of the sexes. That means that, and the passage says this, if my wife, if Susan is not lifted up and washed with the water of the word, if she is not exalted as Christ exalted the church, then there is a ceiling to which I cannot go past. Right? It diminishes any and everything in me for her not to be everything that the Lord has called her to be. Same is true for her. If I am not what the Lord has called me to be, displaying the gifts that he has given to me and the image bearing, then that means that she will be diminished. And so this is a mutual admiration society of sorts, right? Where you ebb and flow, but it's a sacred canopy. We are to display the reconciliation of Christ for the world to see what a unique gift it is to be around two people who you know love each other deeply, but have come to that because they've been through some things. It's not just the goo-goo-ga-ga early stage stuff. It's not that creepy PDA stuff that weirds us out. It truly is something forged in fire, the furnace of affliction, sufferings of this world. So whose purpose is marriage to serve primarily in Christ? Trick question, right? Duh. But really, is that, is that you? It's one thing to be able to give an answer to the question. It's another to live it out in such a way that your marriage is a sacred canopy. Remember, we're all in the process of becoming 
We're all in different stages. You can't look to what someone else has and wish for that. You start with what you have. You offer it up as much as you can to Christ, knowing what he has already offered up to you to make it possible. What do marriages that serve as a sacred canopy for the display of Christ's redemptive love for the life of the world look like? They look like places of swift reconciliation. They look like places where battles are fought for the greater good, where the war against the principalities and powers is declared over in the victory of Christ. What they look like is people who are wrestling with discipleship, not just individually, but together. And that is being offered up for the life of the world. So marriages that serve as a sacred canopy are incredibly hospitable. Um, they're, they're places that people get invited into. Uh, I remember our friends Tripp and Christy got to watch us parent uh, uh, Devin and Kimberly. <coughs> and I don't know why, they still wanted to have kids after witnessing a lot of this stuff. And so, but we just, we just did. We're like, we're just going to be real. Like, I'm not cleaning the baseboards just because they're coming over. Uh, we'll be folding laundry while we're hanging out talking about stuff. It's just, this is just real life. And they loved it, and it meant a lot to them. They adopted three. We, went, we walked with them through infertility. Um, and uh, I'm the one who broached the adoption conversation. In fact, I think I threw an article at them and shoved them out the door so I wouldn't have to argue with them, and maybe the spirit would deal with it. Uh, and it is a, they have an amazing family. They just, the Lord just gave them, they've been living in a house that, I, I think I've got this right, maybe was 1,200 square feet with five, five kids. Can you imagine? I think they added a dog at some point, but they got rid of the dog. They realized, ah, that, was, that was too much. Outdoor cats only. The Lord just blessed them with this amazing 2,500 plus square foot house. A lady, it's right across the street from his aging grandparents. And they are so blessed. Their house sold. I don't know why you buy a 1,200 square foot house in, in Macon, but they did. And uh, God has just been good to them. What an amazing thing that they get. But they got to see, and they, they even said to us recently how much they appreciated. And that's not because we're awesome. We're not. I'm a terrible dad at times. I'm a terrible husband at times, I feel like. But, I'm, but I keep straining toward the upward call, as should you. So Ephesians 5, 22 through 33 teaches us that marriage in Christ should serve as a sacred canopy for the display of his redemptive love for the life of the world. If that is not what you have, then you need to figure out how to fight for it. Because how you feel about it is not what's primary. Right? It's just not. It's what Christ has done, his finished work that's primary. Amen? And so you have access to that. Feelings can be restored, trust me. Trust me, they can be restored. Let's pray. Father, thank you for what Christ has done for us and makes possible for us to do in and through the covenant of marriage. Father, I pray for those who are single and long to be married, that marriage would not be an idol, but instead it would be a, a, a thing of great hope as as they look forward to how you will answer those prayers to create a sacred canopy, to uniquely display your glory in and through the marriage that you will grant someday. For those for whom uh, are, are divorced or no longer have a spouse, may they also recognize that this doesn't mean that they, they display the glory any less than anyone else. There's, their calling is different, but you are the same God, it's the same Christ, it's the same beauty. May they also use uh, what they have learned, maybe ways even in which they failed 
the sacred canopy to, to speak back into the lives of others. Um, help us to be a church who uses all of our resources, both our failings and our successes, to be able to uh, encourage one another. For those who are married and are maybe in, in the process of struggling, may they struggle well. I pray that both spouses would take up the, the, the means of grace, that it would begin today, that, that there would be the seeking of forgiveness, even if through gritted teeth, because you are good and you bless those things. God, I pray that we would stop hiding. We would, we would recognize the gospel sets us free to be who we are openly, um, but also calls us to greater freedom in Christ for the life of the world. I pray you would use the marriages of this church and the varying states that they are in to display your glory more fully than can be displayed without all that structure, all those relationships. May we be humble and seek to walk in a manner that is worthy of our calling. Uh, may we be husbands and wives who look out for the greater good of the other. And in so doing, you are glorified. You are high and lifted up and people are drawn to you and the family gets bigger. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.